WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by Sunbasket. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com slash Friday today to get up to $60 off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, the surprising similarities between birdsong and human speech. But first, after years of decline, U.S. carbon emissions are on the rise again. Yet President Trump is attempting to roll back Obama-era car emissions regulations. The EPA has announced it's fixing fuel economy standards at 37 miles per gallon, giving automakers a huge opportunity to scale back their efforts at designing more fuel-efficiency vehicles. But guess what? Even car makers say the rollback is too much. So this week, four car makers struck, struck their own deal with the state of California. Here to tell us why they did this, as well as other short subjects in science, is Omer Irfan, staff writer for Vox. Welcome back. Hi, Ira. So why did these companies make their own deal directly with uh, the state? Why not follow the new, more lax rules set by the EPA? It's kind of a long story, but in short, California is one of the largest vehicle markets in the country, and they historically have had an exemption from the Clean Air Act to set their own fuel economy and emissions rules. Right now, most of the rules are pretty uniform across the country, but because the EPA wants to relax these rules and California wants to keep them in place, automakers were worried that they would suddenly have to design cars for two different sets of standards. And so these four companies, Ford, Ford, Honda, BMW, and Volkswagen, decided that they wanted to kind of preempt this and strike their own deal that would keep them compliant with California and the federal government. So how does this compare with the Obama-era rules and regulations? The Obama rules that were set out in 2012, they set a benchmark of roughly getting to 54.5 miles per gallon across a company's car fleet by 2025. They gave the car companies a few different ways to comply with this as well, um, including selling electric cars. But car companies were saying that they weren't selling enough of these EVs or these more fuel-efficient vehicles. Americans tend to prefer larger cars. And so they wanted a little bit more flexibility to do that. And this California deal gives them that. Um, the uh, Benchmark year is now 2026 instead of 2025, and the target is 51 miles per gallon rather than 54, which is still stronger than what the EPA wants to roll back to. Hmm. So you get a little bit of something. I mean, you encourage uh, electric cars, and you still keep a little bit of those standards. Yeah, that's right. And uh, part of the mechanism here is that this deal is voluntary, but California is promising these car companies that if a future administration decides to ramp up fuel economy standards, they'll still hold them to this exact deal. And so that's a little bit of an added incentive. Mm -hmm. And of course, where California goes, maybe the rest of the car makers will follow. Yeah, a few of them have already said that they're looking at this deal and they're considering it. And automakers like General Motors have said that they are betting on an all-electric future. So it's just a matter of time before they make the shift themselves. Mm-hmm. All right. And speaking of emissions, uh, teenage climate activist uh, Greta Thunberg announced this week that she will be traveling to New York this fall for the U.N. summit by boat. 
Yeah, that's right. A philanthropist offered her a spot on this uh, 18-meter sailing yacht, um, and the trip is expected to take two weeks, and she's going to be going from Europe to the UN Climate Summit. And Greta, you may recall, uh, went on strike from school last year protesting her government's inaction on climate change, and that has since spawned like a global movement among youth. And she's been kind of walking the walk here because she says that she won't fly because it's one of the most carbon-intensive forms of travel, and hence the sailing across the ocean. And they've actually coined a Swedish word for this, right? Yeah, the word is fliegskam or flying shame. Sweden has somehow become the epicenter of this movement to reduce flying or people feeling guilty about flying. Um, Aviation is only about 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but it's poised to grow, and there are very few opportunities to limit those emissions because there's just not the technology there. And when you calculate your own personal footprint, for many people who do fly, it's often the uh, largest component of it. And so it's a very important way that an individual can act to limit their impact on the climate. Why is it so hard to build fuel-efficient airplanes? Well, the challenge is that there's really nothing that's energy-dense as conventional aviation fuels. You want to pack a lot of energy into a small space when you're traveling by aircraft, so you don't have the luxury of having a much larger battery. Mm -hmm. Um, The other issue is just that air travel, we haven't really invested a lot in trying to make it cleaner because governments really just haven't had an incentive to do so. There are technologies that people are researching right now, electrification, hydrogen fuels, carbon-neutral biofuels, and there are also some offsetting mechanisms as well. But the offsets sometimes don't deliver, and the other technologies um, are kind of in their infancy. So it'll be a few years before they take off. So do you think a fleet scam is going to attract attention? I mean, it already has in other countries. Um, it's taken off. A lot of uh, other activists have also vowed not to fly. There's also a group of activists that is planning to sail to the UN Climate Conference in Chile later this year. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of mounting, particularly huh. among climate scientists who are also looking at their own work. Let's talk about the uh, democratic debates uh, that, that have happened. Uh, I, I make a point about saying two years ago, hardly any mention of climate change was made at the, the, the debates, but things have changed a bit, have they not? Yeah, just about every candidate brought up climate change, and that's not too surprising given that polls show that primary voters consider climate change as one of their top-tier issues, if not the number one issue. So every candidate has to have an answer on climate change. And so what were some of the major uh, you know, uh, programs that don't exist yet? Well, uh, a lot of the candidates, they agree on the fundamentals that the yeah. U.S. has to decarbonize by about the middle of the century. But what I was surprised to hear was a couple candidates talking about some of the specific tactics they want. Particularly, John Delaney was talking about direct air capture of carbon dioxide, and Tim Ryan was talking about regenerative agriculture. Now, you may recall the IPCC report last year that said that we had to decarbonize by 2050. It also said that after that point, we need to pull CO2 out of the air. And so these are two technologies that kind of get at that part of the problem. And and, and, uh, agriculture is a huge possibility, isn't it? Yeah, we devote a huge amount of land in the United States for growing crops, but also growing crops to feed to animals that we also end up eating. And the idea behind regenerative agriculture is that you could engineer the crops to store more carbon in the soil, or you could raise livestock in a way that uh, encourages pasture land and Mm -hmm. plants to grow in a way that puts more carbon out of the air than goes in. And what was the idea of the direct air capture of CO2? That's a little bit more straightforward. It's more like you build a giant machine that scrubs CO2 from the air. There are actually some companies right now that are developing and have built some pilot-scale plants. The issue right now is just making them more energy efficient, bringing the costs down, and then also coming up with a business model that can keep these companies going. Before anything like that can happen, though, you've got to make it a topic of discussion, don't you? 
Yeah. And yes, as you noted, like we saw more discussion of climate change in the first Democratic debate this season than um, in the entire 2016 election cycle combined. And so it's definitely getting some attention. The question is if it'll move the needle in terms of policy. We will be watching, Amir. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Amir Irfan is a staff writer for Vox. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA St. Louis Public Radio KKB Iowa News. Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. This spring, Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy used a line-item veto to dramatically cut state funding to higher education, including the University of Alaska system, which now has come to terms with a cut of some 41 percent. That's over $130 million. There is still the possibility of the state legislature adding back some of the funding, but officials don't have much hope for that. And with the university's fiscal year already starting, you have to make hard choices. Joining me now to talk about the situation in Alaska is Wesley Early, education reporter for Alaska Public Media in Anchorage. Welcome, Wesley. Hi, Ira. Thanks to have you back. Uh, Let's talk about it. Uh, You just got back from a Board of Regents meeting. How is the university uh, facing this level of budget cut? So, yeah, the Board of Regents meeting was on Tuesday, and that was following uh, a a declaration of uh, what's called financial exigency, which is kind of like bankruptcy um, for a university. And what it basically says is that the university can kind of uh, bypass uh, regulations that would protect people who have tenure. And so it allows for sort of an expedited uh, firing process. And then at the Board of Regents meeting, what they decided to do was streamline the current University of Alaska structure, which is a campus in Fairbanks, which is in the middle of Alaska, and then one in Anchorage, the biggest city in sort of South Central Alaska, and then the University of Southeast and the capital in Juneau. And so that is all going to be streamlined into one University of Alaska to sort of get rid of administrative costs and other things. Mm. So the engineering department might be in Anchorage, the biology department might be in Fairbanks, things spread around. Yeah, the, right now there there are several university uh, colleges of education. There's one in Fairbanks and one yeah. in Anchorage, and one of the things they're suggesting is sort of just consolidating them so that you know the University of Arts and Sciences will be in one spot and engineering will be in one spot. And yeah, yeah, a big big budget cuts. Uh, is there any hope that the money will get you know put back? I- well, the legislature was has been really divided on this. At some points, literally split between two different legislative meeting sessions, and there really there requires a three fourths vote of the legislature to override the governor's vetoes, and it doesn't look like they mm-hmm. have that. I don't think there's a lot of confidence about that. Um, there's hope that the governor could restore some of the funding. Um, he's indicated that he would put $38 million back in um, for a two-year reduction plan instead of a one-year reduction plan. But the governor's Office of Management and Budget proposed a very um, concentrated cuts, targeted cuts to certain departments, which really it technically falls under the purview of the Board of Regents, and some people, including the university's accrediting agency, have ca- has called that um, that move kind of a strong arm move from the governor to sort of direct cuts when it's not really his purview. You know, they, for all this, these dramatic cuts, aren't there a lot of faculty tenured and would be protected from being fired in this case? 
Well, not under exigency, which uh, they just uh, which they just declared la- last week. Um, so that basically allows the university to fire tenured faculty. Hmm. Are there trickle down effects that these cuts are going to have? The president's uh, president Jim Johnson of the university certainly thinks so. So not only are they going to have cuts to uh, state funding, but there's just this uneasiness among students and staff and faculty. I was just talking to uh, I was just talking to a former. Uh, teacher yesterday who said, yeah, all of these economics professors and business professors are saying they're leaving. You know, you, I've talked with student leaders who are very involved in the process on campuses, and they said they wouldn't support, you know, they wouldn't recommend it to a student coming up because they uh, just don't know uh, what programs are going to be there. That's, that's awful. You don't get students. You don't get tuition. It just is a positive feedback loop that gets worse. Thank you. We'll be watching it with you, Wesley. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Ira. You're welcome, Wesley Early, education reporter for Alaska Public Media in Anchorage. We're going to take a break, and we're going to check in on a battle over the 30-meter telescope atop Hawaii's uh, Mauna Kea, the the other state that was admitted along with Alaska back in 59. It's an interesting, interesting battle. We'll talk about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Mauna Kea is the tallest mountain in Hawaii, towering over the Pacific at nearly 14,000 feet. That altitude, combined with the mountain's still dry air and extreme darkness at night, make it an ideal place for astronomy. And there are already 13 observatories on the summit plateau. But now astronomers want to build another called the 30-meter telescope, or TMT, which would become the largest visible light telescope on the mountain. But many native Hawaiians don't want it there for multiple reasons. We've talked with Kavika Winter, a multidisciplinary ecologist at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, who had this to say. From the native Hawaiian perspective, this is just the same thing that's happened before. It's preventing people from accessing sacred places. It's desecration of sacred places through construction. It's all of these issues, but this time it's for a good reason. This time it's for science. This time it's for knowledge. So now it should be okay, right? But it's the same thing that's been happening for more than 200 years. It doesn't matter what the reason is. And many Native Hawaiians say the way this fight has been portrayed in the media as Hawaiian culture versus science is disrespectful of their culture, ignorant of their motives, and oblivious to the fact that science has long been an important part of traditional Hawaiian culture. Today we're going to talk about all of that and get an update about what's happening on the mountain uh, with my guests. Let me introduce them. Rosie Alagado is a, an associate professor of oceanography at the University of Hawaii and Manoa. She wrote about the TMT in Nature. She joins us from Hawaii Public Radio in Honolulu. Welcome to Science Friday. Aloha, Ira. Aloha to you, too. Trisha Kahalani is vice president of the nonprofit Aina Mamona. She wrote about the conflict in Vox. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Uh, interesting story, Trisha. Set, set the scene for us. Give us a snapshot of how we got to this point. Well, 
We really got to this point over a number of decades. Native Hawaiians have always, and including environmental groups, have always had concerns about the observatories that were being built at the summit of Mauna Kea. This particular conflict with the 30-meter telescope really started about a decade ago when they started the permitting process. So since 2011, there have been regular legal challenges to this telescope and this project. Um, that came to a head recently when they were about to start construction, and then you had a number of Native Hawaiians, originally a fairly small number, but including a number of elders who placed themselves in the middle of the access road to block the construction vehicles. And I believe it was July 17th, 35 Native Hawaiian elders were arrested by law enforcement in, in their efforts. And that really let, you know, created sort of a firestorm, not even locally, but nationally, where people were really appalled that there would be law enforcement and the National Guard called in on Native Hawaiian elders who really were just trying to protect a site they consider sacred. Is, is that where we stand now? Has there been any budge on the government side? There's been a little bit of budge. They've now rescinded the emergency proclamation that allowed the governor to call in the National Guard. A lot of the additional law enforcement um, troops that were called in have been returned to their islands of origin. Um, and we, for better or for worse, have two hurricanes headed towards us. So I think everybody mm. has recognized that there needs to be a little bit of pause on everything, and people are now sort of um, preparing appropriately. Trisha, sorry for leaving out your last name, Watson, when I introduced you. That's chip. fine. Uh, Absolutely uh, fine. Let's go, uh, let's go with my next question. Rosie, this conflict has been portrayed in the media as a fight between Hawaiian culture and science. But interestingly, you write in your editorial in Nature that, quote, as a native Hawaiian scientist who studies how marine microbes have influenced ecosystems and evolution, it is not my experience that Hawaiian religion or culture has a problem with Western science. Please ex expound on that a little bit for us. That's correct. I mean, I think the most important thing to realize is that all cultures have science. Science is the methodology by which we discover information about our natural world, and that can be very applied in nature, or it can be very theoretical, in meaning that we don't know what the current applications of that can be. For Hawaiian culture, for thousands of years, that was very applied. So in other words, we utilize navigation, which is um, an accretion and accrual of knowledge about oceanography, atmospheric science, and biology um, to get to to voyage between islands. And then, of course, we were completely self-sufficient and sustainable on our islands for over a 1,000 years. And that took ingenuity and um, know-how and knowledge of sustainable practices. So by that, by, by those, you know, just really major accomplishments, we can really see that um, Hawaiian culture and science were really intertwined. And what I mean by the fact that I don't, I have not experienced Hawaiian culture being in conflict with Western science is that historically what we really have seen is that we know that there has been conflicts between culture and religion, but those have been pretty particular to Western science. So if we look at my favorite example is the prosecution of Galileo Galilei by the Catholic Church, right? So that really, I think, sets up this conflict of seeing um, <clears throat> excuse me, Catholicism in conflict with Western science. But we have to remember that there are other knowledge systems that exist outside of Western culture, and those often do not have a conflict with science um, inherently. Our number, 844-724-8255, if you'd like to get in on uh, the conversation. Uh, Tricia, how does this protest compare to other conflicts? Example, Standing Rock protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline. 
Well, I actually think we, for better or for worse of the Dakota pipeline um, conflict, we really benefited from it as a Hawaiian community. A number of our protectors who are currently in Mauna Kea went to Standing Rock and participated. And I think when I went to Mauna Kea this past weekend, so much of the infrastructure of what has been built around this protest, because remember, it went from maybe 50 people to 3,000 people in a very short period of time, was really learning from Standing Rock, learning how they put that infrastructure together, learning how they were able to in a very healthy and loving manner, take care of 3,000 people. And that's really what it's been these past couple of weeks, the ability to make sure all of those people have their medical needs taken care of, their food needs taken care of, their sleeping needs taken care of. So we are so grateful to the First Nations community who has been tremendously supportive of what we're doing here and then basically went first, at least in modern times, um, Mm -hmm. as to how to teach us how to protest in this very nonviolent manner. Are, are people, and I'll ask both of you this question, are people more upset uh, or most upset that they just were not consulted about this? When in the, Not that they're adverse to building the telescopes per se, but they're not consulted. And, and even I was reading that, the, that they're upset about how the telescopes, the other telescopes on the mountain now are not being taken care of, the, the ground that they're on. So both of those are true. So Rosie and I both have PhDs. I also have a law degree. And I think what we saw was this project very intentionally avoid going through the National Historic Preservation Act. So Mm -hmm. despite the fact that they had federal funding, they were able to not go through Section 106 consultation. And had they done so, they would have had to reconcile the fact that there are Native Hawaiians who consider this site of religious and cultural value. So, And we know that they're seeking now um, National Science Foundation funding. So they at some point will have to reconcile that, but I think you're absolutely correct. It speaks to some of the frustrations that although they obtained certain permissions, they really didn't go through consultation with the community. And I feel like the science community, as Rosie very well wrote in her article, has better ethics than that and these systems in play. And perhaps Rosie can speak to that. Yes, please, Rosie. Yeah, I mean, I think that Science, for all of the amazing progress that it has made towards, you know, humanity, technological innovations and improving our health, we cannot operate outside culture and therefore society morals and values. And um, we continue to, to grapple with that as scientists. And I think it's really important to recognize that even if our science in particular might not feel like it directly affects community, perhaps the placement of our instruments where we deploy things may have an effect on the local community. And I think it's important for science to always look and recognize where its blind spots are, scientists rather, um, where our blind spots are. And it's just really unfortunate that astronomy as a science is wrapped up in this because, you know, I would say as a community, um, Hawaiians really love astronomy. And it's just that the process by which um, these telescopes have been managed by UH over the last 50 50 years um, has really been subpar on this Mm. matter. So this is one way to address that issue, too. Absolutely. Uh, There's been talk of building this telescope in the Canary Islands instead of uh, Hawaii. Uh, We talked with the Cayula Fox, assistant professor of biology anthropology at the University of uh, California, San Diego, and he had this to say about that proposal. This is sort of encouraging a musical chairs of colonialism where the baggage 
of building this giant instrument on one observational area that happens to be sacred to Hawaiian people is moved to another place where there are probably equal consequences to the indigenous people of the Canary Islands, which was colonized in 1402 by the Spanish. So it doesn't provide a clear cut solution. It just is a band-aid on something where we need to take away the knife. Tricia, you've been looking into this idea of relocating the telescope, correct? Yes. Um, there have been numerous Native Hawaiians who have been in contact with the local community at La Palma. Um, unfortunately, their indigenous people are no longer around. Um, it was colonized in 1402, as Keolu said, but the indigenous people don't exist there anymore. So it's really a matter of looking at the local community. And from everything we've received, the local community does want it. So I do think you're dealing with two very different scenarios. One, where you have Native Hawaiian people where this is effectively our Garden of Eden. This is perhaps the most important spot in our cosmology. And you have a local community in La Palma who seems far more welcoming to this project than the local people in Hawaii. Mm. So you're saying, well, just move it there and you, you know, you, it makes everybody happy. Well, it possibly does. I mean, mm. I think we are very sensitive to not playing I think as Kilo put it, colonial musical chairs. We would never want to harm another group. We would never want to impose on another place what's being imposed on us. So I think we have a heightened sensitivity to make sure we are working with that local community and hearing from them. And again, mm. everything we're hearing seems to indicate that they would like it. They see the benefits to their economy, whereas I don't think that is, we don't have that agreement here in Hawaii. And they have gone through steps and, and they're welcoming to it. So I think there might be some issues with the sighting there insofar as it might, the altitude isn't as high. So recognizing that the site might be as, not be as ideal for an extremely large telescope, the ELT. But I think, as Rosie mentioned earlier, the social and the cultural conditions are far more suitable to this project. Mm -hmm. But it, is there a compromise still open to Hawaii? If, if the state, the federal government, could become more sensitive and cooperative with your feelings about the place and about the maintenance of the older telescopes, which are not even working anymore, would you be open? Would the, would the Hawaiians be open to allowing for the construction there? You know, this is Rosie here. To be honest, I would have said that it might have been possible in 2015 that, you know, by really opening it up and having a process by which perhaps um, there could have been an integration of how could this telescope and the way that it asks questions what are some of the questions that the local community would like to explore? What research questions are they interested in knowing? How might the construction of the building itself incorporate um, a lot of the spiritual and cultural elements um, that are so important to Mauna Kea? None of that was done. So first of all, there's that. In addition to that, I really must emphasize that um, the arrest of our elders, and these are some of the most revered elders in, um, Hawaiian, in Hawaii today, was just such a deep deep insult to the Hawaiian community and um, paired that with such a show of force that was completely unnecessary. Um, the, the people who were arrested ranged from, um, you know, mid-50s or 60s to 80 years old. It just was such an unmitigated, un unnecessary show of force that I think it's such a deep, deep uh, wound right now. I really don't know that we can go backwards. Amira Plato. Back out of that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Amira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 
talking about uh, the controversy in Hawaii over building the TMT, the telescope there. University of Hawaii President David Lasner made a statement about this this week. He said, I realize that TMT now represents a huge source of friction in our work to become a model indigenous serving university and Hawaiian place of learning. We will need many conversations over the months ahead to work on that together. My heart and mind are open as I continue to listen and share. Tricia, you talked with the University of Hawaii president about various compromises that could be made on the mountain. What did he say? Are, are you uh, optimistic at all? Well, I, I think it's important to note that David has been part of Hawaii for a long time. So they hired from within when they selected this president. And he and I happened to be at Mauna Kea at the same time and caught the same flight home. So we did have a great conversation. And he, I think, is very sincere in his belief. And I think he is also equally sincere in wanting to make the university a Hawaiian place of learning. I think there are many more dialogues that need to happen about the future of Mauna Kea, period, at this point. And my hope is that he begins to listen to people that not only just agree with his perspective, but vehemently disagree with it. And I think that effort is being made, but I think Rosie is right. Mm. I think there have been activities in the last couple of weeks that have been so aggressive and so deeply hurtful to the Hawaiian community that I think it will take some sort of prolonged stand down before people feel comfortable coming to the table again. Let me see if I can get a quick phone call into Gwen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Gwen, quickly, please. Hi. Um, I just want to say, as a student of Hula in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and having just read um, Sarah Vowell's history of, of the colonization by Massachusetts Native of Hawaii in the 1820s, um, that I, I'm, I was just horrified um, to hear about the decimation of populations by people from um, from Massachusetts bringing Christianity and then sailors and bringing disease to Hawaii and the the number of Native people who were who died in this, and I just feel like the history is too long and too horrible. And we just um, we do a perform, we do a dance to Mauna Kea, and it's incredibly moving. I would love to see the mountains. It. I'm going to have to go, Gwen. We, we got the gist of, uh, of what you're trying to say. Thanks, thanks for your call. Um, uh, so, so where? Let me let me ask you, uh, Trish. Where do Trish? Where do you see this all ending up? Well, my hope, I, I genuinely believe it would it would take some sort of miracle for that mm. project to proceed. You, you literally have thousands of people blocking the road, and they're there for the long haul. You have people moving in, basically. Um, but again, there's a larger issue of the management of the mountain that Rosie talked about earlier, and that that really has not been done well. And there are needs for dialogues that they have just avoided having. And I think... Any time, you know, science needs to be engaged okay. at all times with the community. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. Rosie Alagado, uh, Associate Professor of Oceanography, University of Hawaii, and uh, Trisha Kahulani Watson, Vice President of the nonprofit Aina Mamona. Uh, Mamona, stay, uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you've ever watched a baby learn how to talk, you know that it's a messy process because what, what, first the baby has to hear you talk. Then there's that babbling, right? All that random sound as uh, the baby starts to figure out how to use its muscles to make the sounds that it's hearing from adults. And then finally, the baby starts to figure it out and you get those first exciting words. And then before you know it, 
your baby is all grown up defending his territory and wooing mates. Oh, wait, wait, did I, did I say human babies? I should have said all of this is how songbirds, like the zebra finch you just heard, learn to produce the complicated patterns of notes they uh, must memorize if they want any chance of reproductive success in adulthood. But in labs that study these birds, researchers are also thinking about the parallels between bird learning and human speech. Bird song is one of the closest analogs in nature to how we talk, it turns out. And studying how birds learn in infancy may open windows into our brains. Here with more to talk about that, my guest, Dr. John Sakata, Associate Professor of Biology at McGill University in Montreal. Good to have you. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down. So how close is birdsong to human speech? Um, we think there are a lot of, a lot of parallels between birdsong and human speech, and, and you've outlined a lot of them in your description. Just thinking of the process by which birds have to learn how to produce their own vocalizations, their own species-typical vocalizations, is really similar to how children have to figure out how to produce these speech sounds to communicate with others in, in their environment. Mm-hmm. So they go through this, it's this fundamentally the same across um, just species that learn how to, to their own vocalizations. So it first involves learning the sounds of the sound that you use to communicate, and then involves learning how to produce those sounds, so figuring out the motor uh, patterns or the, the motor commands to produce those particular sounds. Now, that first phase is sort of this memorizing the sounds of the of the adults around them, and then memorizing a song that they ultimately want to sing. That's sort of their target song. And then they go through this, like you said, they babble, and mm-hmm. they start practicing, and they figure things out. Sometimes they get things wrong, sometimes they get things right, and when they get things right, the brain is like, aha, that's great. You did some good. Keep doing that. And eventually, they they grew up singing their own songs. Uh, is this unique to birds, this kind of learning? Or do other animals do this? Well, other there, there are a handful of other birds. So there are songbirds. So right. within the, the large uh, clade of birds, there are songbirds. There are about four to 5,000 songbirds that learn their own songs. There are also hummingbirds that learn their own songs, and also parrots. That they're fairly well known for, for being vocal learners. But outside of birds, there are a number of mammals. For example, or humans being one of the main ones that we think about, um, bats also are vocal bats. learners. Bats, yes. Wow. And so this is a relatively, people have, be, have become to appreciate that more and more in the last couple decades. Uh, cetaceans like dolphins and whales are also vocal learners. And there's some new evidence that, that elephants can imitate human sounds. So there's vocal learning in elephants. So there, there's a pretty mm. neat sort of group of, of vertebrates that can learn their vocalizations. And it's not as extensively studied in those other systems, um, but it's really well studied in birds. And we know that that whole process of, of uh, sensory learning and then pra- mm. vocal practice and sensory motor learning. But I think it's going to be fleshed out, and I, my bet is it's ultimately going to be the same thing in bats and in, in, in uh, elephants. Interesting. And, yeah. I want to bring back that bird we heard before uh, when I did the introduction. Let's hear it again. Zebra finch. Yes. Okay, so what is the zebra finch telling us? It's saying, this is me, 
I'm singing, and it does this all the time. So what is it doing? I, we don't know. We're trying to figure that out. But it sings a lot, and it sings when it's by itself. It sings when it's courting a female, and it it really is the the song that it produces when it's courting a female is really one of the most important things that females use to pick who to mate with. And so the bird has to do this really well. So he spends a bunch of time. What we think when he's singing by himself is that we actually think he might be practicing just to make sure he's, you know, you know, keeping up his, his vocal skills. And then when he sees a female, he's in his, his ultimate, his best performance, and he shows off his, his sort of his vocal skills, if you will. So you have a lab full of these birds? We do have a lab what full. What a noisy place. Well, we <laughs> have them. It would, it would be lovely to have them just flying around, but we do have them in the sound attenuating chambers so we can have the recordings of them in, a, in, a, in an acoustically clean environment just like you have here in the studio. Um, but we do have them also flying around as well. So, so you trying to figure out how, what's going on in their brains yes. when they're yep. doing the songs. Yes. That's what you're trying to do. Both the learning of the song and the production of the song as well. So we think that you know songbirds are really interesting. I mean, there are a lot of animals that, that uh, folk, uh, communicate with each other with sounds. Right? Mm-hmm. But songbirds, I think, are really interesting and I think special because they have, they're not born with this ability to, to produce their own species songs, but because they have to learn them. And so studying that learning process, I think, is what really makes songbirds an, an interesting and important model system to study with regard to brain mechanisms. So do they have a center in their brain? Like have, we might have. They have many centers. So for, they, for these songs. Yes, there's a, there's a series of brain areas that are connected to each other that have parallels in the human brain. So, for example, there's an area called, uh, there's a part of the brain, a series of interconnected brain areas called the basal ganglia. And people think about that a lot in humans mm-hmm. with regard to movement. And, and when things go awry in Parkinson's disease, you often have some uh, uh, things that go wrong in the basal ganglia, in the basal ganglia itself. Sorry. Uh, but what's neat about songbirds is they also have this basal ganglia, and within the basal ganglia, they have this specialized portion called uh, Area X. It's a very attractive Area name. X. Area X. I like the way you say it. That's a TV show coming up about <laughs> birds. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that area is specialized for song learning, and if you if you mess with activity in that brain area during development, birds don't learn their songs particularly well. And so we think that there are parts of the human basal ganglia that are important for vocal learning as well, and that are similar similar to this this area X you see in birds. You know, in, in people, we say that people learn things better earlier in life. Is that the same thing with the birds learning their songs, or do they learn it their whole lives? There are species differences in how long they can, for, yeah. for, for how, um, to how old they can keep learning their songs for. So the zebra finches that we study, they only learn their songs during the first month or two of their lives. And so there's a really restricted window of development. And these zebra finches sing one song their whole life. So this this f- one or two months of development is really important for them to, to learn and crystallize their songs. Uh, but there are other species like mockingbirds and European starlings that are what we call open-ended learners that can learn songs throughout their lifetime. And so we are really interested in trying to figure out what is different in the brains of these two different types of because birds. Because they're imitating other birds, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, they can yeah. Im- Im- even imitate non-avian sounds, right? right? So car alarms, for example, being a classic example for mockingbirds can do, right? And how do they do that? I mean, so we, we don't know, huh. but we're trying to figure that out. Uh, and so your lab is investigating whether song learning also is influenced by social Ex- yes. interact. What do you mean by that? So, you know, we as 
we humans, right, babies, children can learn from watching videos and, mm. and, and learn how to say particular things, but it's not particularly robust learning. And we as people learn much better if we're allowed to socially interact with an adult or with a peer, um, and that leads to more robust and efficient learning. Now, the same thing happens in songbirds. When you have a juvenile bird that's being tutored by an adult another adult, um, that bird learns the, the song of that adult bird mm-hmm. much better uh, versus in, in comparison to a juvenile that's housed individually and just hears song being played back passively out of a, a speaker. Right? So we compare um, these song learning under social situations or, or social contexts and song learning uh, in response to passive exposure to song. And we, we see, again, more robust learning uh, when juveniles are allowed to socially interact with adults. Hmm. Uh, is, is bird song a language? Are the birds talking right, to so, one another? So uh, as uh, songbird researchers, we... We try to be really careful about, about what we say birdsong is analogous to. And so for the most part, we say that birdsong is analogous to speech and not to, to language, per se. So, wait, wait, so wait, what's the difference? I mean, right. speech, language? Yeah, yeah so yeah. when we talk about it, uh, as a scientist, when we talk about it, we think of speech as sort of the, the motor, the really just the how do you produce the sounds that, are, that comprise language, right? And when we talk about language, we think of the semantic content, the syntax, the, the sort of the meaning that's that's uh, it, it's within language itself that we're trying to communicate and we you know birds do communicate particular things with their vocalizations but the 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 re- repertoire of meanings of things that they communicate is is much more restricted than that what we see in human language right so we think that we you know they can't convey an infinite number of things about the environment at least as far as we can tell um, and so we think that you know what's the most parallel between Bird song and 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 human speech is the sort of the the production aspect of it. So you're saying that birds are not taking different little songs and putting them together like we would take different words as we oh. speak. Some birds do so, but not to the same extent as humans do. There's this thing called combinatorial syntax, and some birds do put different calls together to form different meanings. It's a really neat field. But I'm it, pushing it, back on this. Uh, yeah, if that sounds like speech. It sounds, it sounds to me. It sounds like a little bit like language. A little, a little bit. Yeah. There, there are people who study this and think about the linguistic principles in birdsong, and I think there are, there are certainly uh, phenomena that birds do that are akin to language, but I, I think we wouldn't argue that the same scope of, of human language in terms of uh, and, and and birds that can mo- that can imitate human speech are they doing something different? Um, they I we don't know we, we don't, don't know. we don't know a lot about those those kind of birds they're really interesting I mean they the ability to human to to mimic human speech probably has something to do with things in the periphery you know so what can their their muscles do the beak and the tongue and can they ultimately produce those sounds but it's probably not just that too. there's probably some differences in the brain of these birds that can imitate human speech and birds that can't do that but ultimately I think my guess is that they're using the same circuits for right. uh, the same brain areas for learning human speech or how to produce human speech as learning how to produce another bird song in these like in these mimics. In the, in the birds that you study, I'm, I'm thinking about like parrots imitating people. No, th- uh, yeah, that's fantastic. We we don't know anything about how parrots <laughs> l- l- do that. Uh, we and zebra finches can't do that. They, they can't can, do that. They, no. they can sing their own species song, uh, but they can't. Uh, 
say hello to to us. It'd be nice if we have a whole colony full of birds saying hello to us in the morning, but we don't have that. It might get tiresome after it, a while. It might, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, so what can we learn about humans? If you study the brains of yes. these birds, yep. what what is it going to tell you about us? Well, I think there's been a lot of research into trying to find these parallels between bird brains and human brains, and we, we have, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that a lot of these areas that we see in songbirds that are important for song learning are really similar to these areas that we find important for speech learning and acquisition in humans. So if we study these processes in songbirds, maybe we can get some, some insight into the processes that are involved in speech acquisition in humans. Furthermore, we can study, um, you know, there there are individuals with deficits in, uh, communica- have communication disorders, so deficits in learning how to speak and how to produce language. And there are a number of genes that have been implicated in these these communicative disorders. And one thing we can do is those same genes are expressed in, uh, a lot of those same genes are expressed in songbirds, and we can actually ask, to what extent do these individual genes, if you you introduce a variant into a songbird brain, can that also lead to deficits in communication in the songbird? So you can help really look for the genetic substrates underlying communication disorders um, by using songbirds as as an, an animal model system. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Do you find that, that birds are actually smarter than we give them credit for? I think they're smart at doing all the stuff that they're meant to do, and I think we just have to come up with the right tests. To, but I think they're, they're, they surprise us a lot. Yeah. They, yeah. Were, were you surprised by their singing ability? Uh, Anything surprised you? No. I mean, they're, I think the amount that they sing is pretty amazing. Yeah. We have some studies where we gave them these random sets of sequences and we found that they what happens is that they oh sorry no, they okay. they pull they when you give them these random sounds of their zebrafinch sounds they pull out sequences that are really typical of the sequences you see in the wild right. so we think that the brain is biased to learn these these species typical sequences that you see so you give them this random garbage of sounds well random sequences and they pull out things that their species would use for communication interesting thank you very much john Sakata, associate professor of biology at uh, mcgill university in montreal uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today we're, we're celebrating bird song and other brainy bird tricks this month with our sci-fi book club reading of the book the genius of birds by jennifer ackerman and here with a couple of updates on what the club's been doing sci-fi producer, book and bird nerd, Christy Taylor. Hey, Ira. Okay, welcome back. What's what's the report from the book club trenches? Well, we've been reading for a couple weeks now, and we've been having some great on-air conversations about smart birds with our listeners on Facebook, uh, about what kinds of intelligence we can measure in birds, including uh, these great tricks of navigation, problem solving, and of course the communication that we just talked about with Dr. Sakata. And then, of course, other neat tricks like this one Ken in Lawrence, Kansas told us about on the Sci-Fi Vox Pop app. A friend in Hayes, Kansas, who watched a western kingbird put cigarette butts in the nest for the young ones because it supposedly repels ticks, mites, and other uh, pests, which I think is a learned behavior. Obviously, it's not a genetic programming, and I think that's very smart. 
That's Ken in Kansas on our new Science Friday Vox Pop app, which lets people chime in on different Science Friday questions using their phone microphone. And we have two questions like that right now for our book club readers. So you can join on in and find the Science Friday Vox Pop app wherever you get your apps. And Ira, our listeners have been sharing stories about all kinds of smart bird behavior they've been seeing. Uh, cardinals begging them to refill the bird feeder. Crows cracking nuts on the sidewalk. Megan in San Jose saw a crow dipping stale French fries in water to <laughs> Soften them up. Them up. That's pretty smart. You know, I love how, <laughs> I, I love how smart crows are because I've seen them a lot, and we've been learning about the uh, New Caledonian crows' mm-hmm. amazing puzzle-solving abilities. Uh, just reading in the book that, that how they make tools, but also how they use tools to, and they use tools to get another tool, and they'll eventually get them the food that they need. Yeah, and they also seem to have like cultural differences in how they make these tools depending on where they live. They like pass this down uh, through families. Uh, I'm also personally getting really excited about bowerbirds. They make mm. these really beautiful, mm. elaborate nests. Each species seems to have a different sense of aesthetics, favorite colors, tricks with perspective that they do to lure their females, um, and maybe even a sense of artistry, which is a fun debate we can have next week. Uh, well, is it too late for newcomers to join in the book club? Absolutely not. You can still pick up The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman and start reading. Find our discussion group on Facebook and go looking for birds near you with our iNaturalist Challenge. Uh, take a photo on your phone, send it in, and you will be contributing valuable citizen science data. That's all on sciencefriday.com slash book club. There you go. Christy Taylor, Science Friday producer and wrangler for our book club. And our bird conversation continues when we're in San, Th- San Antonio next Saturday, August 10th at the Tobin Center, talking about conserving local bird species. Plus, we'll be talking about bats and diseases so deadly you need a special biohazard suit to deal with them. So if you're in Texas, join us on Saturday, August 10th. Find out more on our website at sciencefriday.com slash San Antonio. And uh, Charles Berkowitz is our director. Our senior producer, Christopher Intagliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Feather. And we had production help from Lucy Wang and our intern, Camille Peterson. And thanks to Lauren Young for helping put together our telescope segment. And if you haven't checked it out, download our Science Friday Vox Pop app. You can submit questions and comments for upcoming shows in your voice, right in your voice. We might play the recording on the air, Science Friday Vox Pop app. In New York, I'm Ira Flato. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.